Ruiz. Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinSwift.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfein, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at FunkinStuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get, uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. Hi, I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership original keyboardist, guitarist, composer, and singer for Rock and Roll Hall of Fame innovators at Talking Heads, Mr. Jerry Harrison. Harrison has also released solo projects and produced dozens of other artists, including Violent Femmes, Crash Test Dummies, General Public, The Verve Pipe, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, No Doubt, The String Cheese Incident, and Turquoise, the latter of which he toured with earlier this year to mark the 40th anniversary of the Talking Heads iconic Remain in Light album. A tour like all others interrupted by the coronavirus. Jerry, it is truly an honor. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I just must say that the tour with Turquoise and Adrian Ballou actually never got started. We had a rehearsal in uh, Nashville, but the tour was going to begin at the beginning of May. So. At this point, it's postponed to the fall, but I'm not holding my breath with, you know, what uh, Mayor Garcetti said in L.A. of nothing until next year. I think that the idea of people going to a festival and being packed together with 25 to 50,000 people, just people will be very wary of something like that. And um, it's going to take either some sort of universal immunity or a very, very uh, effective treatment <laughs> to make people not feel like worried about that. Yes, yes. Um, it's a shame all around. But um, yeah. yeah, I actually just saw Sammy Garrett with um, Freak Bass played Charlotte in February, right before things kind of got mm. locked down. So I enjoyed that show. Great. Great, great singer. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that, well, that's cool. Well, you know, today is Bernie Worrell's birthday. So it's a very auspicious day that we would be have doing this uh, uh, chat. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I'm going to dig more into uh, Bernie Worrell uh, yeah. in a couple minutes. But, um, you know, again, thank you for being here. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to start out, uh, Jerry, just, you know, how did you first get into music and choose that as a career path? Well, I have been in, um, I've been playing music since I was a kid. My fa father had played jazz music to help put himself through college in the 30s. And so there was sort of, and my grandmother played ragtime piano, so the idea of playing music was certainly, um, not that they taught me much about music, but there was the sense of it being an interesting thing to do. And so I played in high school bands, but when I um, went off to Harvard, I thought, well, now the serious part of my life starts. So I basically sold all of my instruments. And I was uh, there and then a, someone who really became my best friend, Ernie Brooks, who played in the Modern Lovers with me, he had started a band and I used to go see them play and I went, well, I'm this good, I could do this. And so I joined that band and um, actually there's a kind of wonderful story. The went back out uh, over summer vacation and everybody sent me money. The Fender dist distributor for the Midwest was in Milwaukee, this pedal steel player named Ralph Hansel. So at West Dallas Music, you could get these great sort of used older Fenders. And I bought an incredible amount of Fender amplification and brought it back in a trailer to the East Coast for us to sort of really be a band. and. But I never thought that it would be my career uh, until I was making a film and Jonathan Richmond came in my, into my life. And I put him in the film and his music was going to be the soundtrack. And Ernie was in the next, next room and um, we would, we would listen, listen to it and we'd go, you know, there's nothing in the world like this music. Um, it was at a time where... Uh, Music, music, music had become a little bit, started to be dominated from people who had gone to the academy, so to speak. So I not, knew I was never going to be a keyboard player with the technique of Keith Emerson or, you know, uh, bands like Yes. or I mean, all of these bands where it appeared that you needed to have a sophistication of technique that start, meant that you had to have you know, started taking piano lessons at four, and and that certainly wasn't me. And but when I when I started playing with Jonathan, it was like, nope, we're no one in the world is doing music like this. It doesn't matter that it doesn't have the technical sophistication. In fact, that's part of what's so important about it. Uh, I often think of the Modern Lovers as that we were in some ways, really the first punk band or instrumental in what became punk. You can certainly say that the Stooges and the Velvet Underground were huge influences on that music and we were sort of next in line. But I think we kind of took the idea that if you have something to say, then you can, even no matter what your level of competency on your instrument, maybe there's ways you can find to express it, which I think is sort of the underlying message of punk is like that you 
you got something you want to say or something you want to complain about or something, you know, you can just bang on a, on a pot and tell us what it is, but don't take too long. <laughs> like the, the, the rawness, the raw emotion of it. Yeah. 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 And in fact, as you become a, a better player, it sort of changes the way you play and you don't, you can't, you don't play. Not, a, not aggressive is too simple, but just like when you start playing more with your wrist or you, instead of your whole arm or you start, you, you learn all the things that makes you technically a much better player and smoother. Sometimes that's, we, in both the Modern Lovers and the Talking Heads, we would sometimes deliberately when we were writing songs, switch instruments. So you, each person had the sort of naive sense of an instrument and would play it with that sort of simple directness. And the Modern Lovers, that, that was like around 72 or 73 or? Yeah, I, um, well, I met Jonathan in 71 and then we started playing together in 72, yeah. Uh -huh. So, you know, jumping forward a few years, you know, how did you come to connect uh, with what would become the Talking Heads and how did that coalesce? Well, basically, the Modern Lovers made the demo tapes that eventually became the album, The Modern Lovers, years later, which became, like, it, I think it came out in the beginning of 1975. And it was, even though it was recorded in 1972, and it became a sort of underground classic. And as I said, we had this sort of movement starting, which really had started with the Ramones in, in New York and then went to, across the CBGB scene, but also went to, to London. There's a very noteworthy uh, concert where the Ramones opened for the Flaming Groovies at the Roundhouse on July 4th, 1976. And almost all of the musicians who became the early punk bands in, in, in England were in attendance of that concert and were inspired by that. I'm not going to say that they hadn't already started doing anything, but they, it really, it did kind of begin with the Ramones. Um, and, and the Talking Heads, though, our music was very different than the Ramones. We loved their music and shared that still that sense of uh, being to the point, never, no extended solos, no, um, no beating about the bush. You know, just get get the songs out, and um, so anyway, the Modern Lovers record was released by Berserkly. They had sort of made a deal with the members of the band, and then Warner Brothers and A and M to be able to combine the the demos we had made for them to make that record. And so the the Toggy Heads were looking to expand their lineup, and they ran into. Ernie Brooks, you know, who I mentioned before, but also Steve Paul. Steve Paul had a fabulous club in New York called The Scene in the 60s, which is like where these famous jam sessions where Jimi Hendrix jammed with Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck. And it was sort of pre-CBGBs, but a very um, important to the growth of music in New York. And, and a rock club, not a folk club, like the ones on Bleecker Street. So Steve and Danny Fields, who is, there's a fabulous movie about him called um, Danny Says, that uh, wanted to manage the modern lovers. And 
But years later, Steve Paul was talking to the members of the Talking Heads, and when they mentioned they wanted to expand, he recommended me because he knew that I was a painter. And of course, I've been in the Modern Lovers. He thought that we would have sympathetic, uh, you know, ways of thinking, and that that certainly proved to be true. Mm -hmm. And what were your, uh, you know, early impressions of of David and Tina and uh, Chris? Well, once again, I thought there was something totally unique that they were doing, and therefore it was it was the world deserved to hear it, and it was special. And I knew that. I'd, that I would be honored as well as I felt like I had something really to contribute. And I don't, I don't think I ever expected, I knew that we would be a very important band, but I never was, I never knew we would kind of get the general popularity that we did. Um, you know, I think there was a, like back then, there was sort of a great pride about being a leader in the underground. And one didn't like, always worry that it ever got out of the underground. That was, that was okay. Um, it's a little bit like the Beat Poets or something like that. I don't think that Allen Ginsberg ever thought he might have the audience he eventually had. But as long as he had the respect of, you know, Gary Snyder and uh, Jack Kerouac and William Burroughs, etc., that was enough. And in fact, you almost preferred it that way because then when you went to another city, the people in your audience were in general, if you had gone to that city and sought out the people that had the same sort of philosophy as you, you'd automatically found them. And an example of that was that Talking Heads, when we went to Europe opening for the Ramones in 1977, before the uh, R record came out, we, when we, after we would play, we'd kind of just go back out to watch the Ramones, but these people that had come to see us would find us, and then we'd go out in Lyon or Zurich or, what you know, weird places. Like, we even played in, like, Penzance in England. We went all over the place, small towns. And um, and they were always, like, really interesting people. You never, like, there was no sense that our fans were a burden. It was more like they were uh, kindred souls. Um, this idea of us playing with the Ramones worked very well in Europe at that time and in England because they had mainly known about these bands through the magazines that were writing about us. So they wanted to know what's going on in New York. And so they didn't have a hardened distinction between something like the Talking Heads and the Ramones. When we tried it in the United States, it was our two audiences didn't really uh, coalesce and so it, was, it didn't work at all. Um, but we were a very, both the Ramones and we were very hardworking at touring and developing our audiences on the road. I would say more than almost any other bands from that CBGB era, the two, these two bands built their audiences by live performance the most. You guys, I mean, right from the gate that when you, you got that first record out, four records in four years, uh, very, uh, you know, productive time. What, uh, what was the creative process like for the band in the studio? How would you describe that? Well, we very deliberately tried to create a different atmosphere for every album in that time. The first album 
was of course songs that were already written when I joined the band. And Chris and Tina and David had thought that the idea of um, having a disco producer would give us a different sound. And so they had chosen Tony Bon Jovi, who when he was recording us had had to interrupt it to go up and do disco Star Wars. Um, he eventually built the studio, famous studio, the Power Station. And there's actually, I think, I don't know, like an uncle to John Bon Jovi or something like that. And Tony had been, was a very interesting guy. He had been a fanatic about listening to music and he wrote a letter to Motown telling them what, like what, what preamps and what EQs and things like that they used on their records that was so accurate that they hired him. I think he did this as a high school student. He was a real master of the, um, the engineering side of, of recording, but he didn't know anything about music. So he had someone named Lance Quinn, who was a session guitar player, help him in producing us. And there was a tension there on the first record because you know, he was used to making hyper clean uh, um, you know, sort of immaculate records that disco was sort of known for. You know, you, you know they had st totally steady beats and so everything was kind of in place. And of course, that didn't exactly go with a punk ethos. So there's a little bit of a t tension there. And, you know, he kind of, he, he was, his, I don't know, understanding of the lyrics and his interest in the music was from very one-sided. So when we, we met Ina, when we went off on this tour <clears throat> with the Ramones, and we were admirers of, of his, and actually, Roxy Music had come on the Warner Brothers scene right around the time the Warner, that the Modern Lovers did. So I was really aware of Roxy Music. And so, and intellectually, the Brian and the rest of us just got along really well. We went over to his house and then went to a bookstore. And I found this book about Scientology that it appeared that every, every copy in the United States had been bought up by Scientologists, so it didn't get out. <clears throat> called Inside Scientology, and I'd read a review of it in Rolling Stone by William Burroughs, and I'd been searching for this book for years. And so anyway, we just felt this kindred feeling with Brian, so we decided that he would do the next record, which we did down at Compass Point, which was a new studio that Chris Blackwell from Island Records, who was very good friends with Gary Kerr first, and by that point had become our manager. I think we were the first non-Jamaican band to record there, and uh, we 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 went there three times. It was really great, and we so we made more songs about buildings and food. But what was interesting about that is you had with Brian, he would sometimes start putting really heavy effects on what you were playing <clears throat> as it was recorded to tape, and. Sometimes that was sort of frustrating because you wanted the performance that you had just done. But there was always something quite interesting with what he did. And we had a fairly, tr we had a pretty trusting view that 
what was going to come out would be great. And he also was the first one to make us understand that the studio was yet just another uh, tool in the toolkit of making music. Um, up until that point, there was this sort of sense that musicians were in the room. And then, you know, in the days of, say, the beginning of the early Beatles albums, the, uh, the uh, engineers wore white lab jackets and you sort of weren't allowed where they went. Sometimes even the tape machines, like in a film production, would be in a different room. And it was a little bit like going and getting a, a blood test or an x-ray. You know, they were the experts who did that and you were the sort of subject matter of that. But working with Eno, all of those sort of borders sort of broke down. And then when we, when we did uh, um, Fear of Music, we decided that we kind of liked the way it sounded in our, where we rehearsed. So we decided to record our basic tracks in our rehearsal studio. So we hired the record plant uh, remote truck and it came out on two Sundays so that there would be less traffic noise and recorded the record there and then finished it in the studio. And that was the only time that I ever worked with David by myself on songwriting. So like I'm a co-writer on Heaven and Mind and Memories Can't Wait and a few other things. Um, and that I think, and I think Fair of Music is one of our finest records. It's dark, but it's, it really encapsulates a certain, I don't know, maturation process over, over those first three albums. And then, Remain in Light became a complete break where we decided we would, it was really inspired by E. Zimbra from, from Fear of Music that we all realized that how much we loved that track and loved African music and that we would, when we next went in the studio, that would be an inspiration for us. And we decided there to have a process that we would write everything in the studio because we decided that there was something Sometimes the first time you played something, you played it different than any other time. And so we were trying to kind of capture that. So very often things were played one at a time. Chris would just go out and play a beat and the bass part would get... So there was a very much a sense of, of, uh, of sort of piecemeal adding it up over time. And using the studio, there were boards back then had sort of an A-B switch, and you could assign channels to either group A or group B. So we would sort of use that as our composition tool, taking these stacks of tracks and assigning them to group A or group B. And that would be how the arrangement of the song was put together. This did create a, a burden for David because there were so few chord changes that when we got to the point of melodies and lyrics, uh, we, I think we unfortunately, because we had a lot of momentum in the Bahamas, Brian needed to take off three weeks. And we came back to New York, and in many ways, David had writer's cramp, so to speak. And the only way he got over it was by playing some new parts um, for the record. And we then got down to that we were going to play these shows, and how, how could we do this live? And David and I kind of sat down and said, well, we're going to need another guitar. We'll need another bass player. We'll need background singers. We're going to need a percussionist. And we're even going to need a second bass player because we're intertwined bass parts. 
that that I it's, it's important to note that by the way that we played everything on on, on there is none of the people that joined us for stop making sense performed on uh, on remained in light that was and I think that one of that's one of the reasons it sort of has held its uh, its place because it's absolutely influenced by African music, but it's filtered through our ability to play it. It's not like we hired, you know, like in contrast to say something like Graceland, where you hire, you know, something that's completely in place, that's a style of music, and then add your, your, your vocals to that or your, your sensibility of songwriting to that. This was us trying to digest what we had learned from say Fella or Mano de Bango or King Sonny Day and, and try and play it as best we could. And um, I had produced Nona Hendrix, so I brought her in, in to sing on the record, which I think really, really started us down a path. And so then we hired this, I went out and hired the band one afternoon, which was incredible to have both Bernie and uh, Adrian Ballou in the same band. In fact, that that band is you is a different feeling than say "Stop Making Sense." You there's a wonderful YouTube video of us playing in Rome in the 1980, which captures what that band was like. And there are similarities, but there's something unique about that. And so the goal with, with this upcoming tour with Turquoise was to create the joy and the feeling of that. Mm -hmm. So. Unfortunately, it's been put on hiatus, but I hope we get to that. Yeah, we, we hope so for sure. Um, how did you come in contact with Bernie Orell? Of course, you know, superstar with Parliament Funkadelic. And um, you know, how did that connection happen? Um, I was introduced to Bernie and Dolette by Busta Jones. I don't know how I met Busta Jones, but Gary Kerfers had managed a band with Chris Spedding and Busta. And so Busta was around the New York scene, and after um, finishing Remain in Light, or was it? Actually, this began before we did Remain in Light, that there was enough time after a very lengthy tour for Fear of Music to, that I was just hanging around. And so I met Busta, and then we did some work together. We did this kind of funk punk band called the Escalators. And I played just, I was the only guitar player. And then we put on an EP in Canada. And, but I met Bernie through Busta. And I knew, of course, I knew uh, Nona, who I had produced. And Busta helped me with that. I mean, I was, and I just, being around the New York scene, I just met Bernie. And then well enough to be able to call him up and ask him to uh, and, uh, negotiate with his wife, Judy, who had taken over managing with him. And to this day, she'll go, Jerry, that was the simplest negotiation I've ever had. You said, I want to hire Bernie for two weeks. We're going to do two shows and we're going to be rehearsals and I'm going to, I can pay him this much. And she goes, and she goes, that seemed fair to me and we just did it and exactly that's what happened. She goes, I can't tell you, everything else has been, it's much more complicated. So Judy and I haven't talked in a while. I, haven't, I actually haven't seen her since Bernie's memorial service, but she's up in Washington. Yeah, he passed four years ago, and uh, almost four years ago. 
What um, what was it about you guys that clicked so well, though? Because he ended up working with you, you know, even on some yeah. of your other projects and things. Yeah. Well, I mean, partially we both played keyboards, and we were next to each other on stage. And, you know, so there was a discipline. I mean, one of the things about adding all these members to the band is one of the things I think sometimes we did is we gave the people who he'd asked to play with us sometimes some of the more fun parts to play because we didn't want to have them only playing necessary but less fun parts to play um and so bernie and i were also always sort of in a period of discussion of like who would play what and and what would we do and of course he he had all the things i was talking about about keith emerson and about that he had that he had gone to the New England Conservatory of Music, and he had, I think I'd, he had played at Carnegie Hall when he was four or something like this. And so he had this knowledge of classical music, and of, of course, um, and had perfect pitch and an unbelievable time. And but also the delicacy of his being able to play, of having, you know, having had a Taskmaster piano teacher when he was a really little kid. And so he had, you know, he was such a complete musician that way, but he always was so help, helpful because he, you know, if there was something that was difficult that sometimes, well, Bernie, why don't you play it? He goes like, no, I don't want to play it. I want you to play it because you play it differently than I would ever play it. And I like the way you play it. So you got to, you know. And so he, he, re he recognized, that, again, it's almost that thing that I was saying about the, uh, <clears throat> about the modern lovers is that you know you'll hear you'll hear cover songs where a very very competent band plays sort of a classic song that someone else did and they do it really really well in fact they do it with fewer mistakes and stuff like that but it doesn't have the it doesn't have the the balls or the guts of it or something like that because partially because they play it more carefully my, my youngest son was playing the difference between Chuck Berry's Memphis and Elvis's version of Memphis. And Elvis's is a much bigger production, than, but it's slightly inauthentic. And so I think that Bernie recognized that, you know, each musician had something important to offer. And, but we also were hanging out together. You know, it's like you're on the road. And then, as I, as you said, it's like, you know, he would come and, when he was in New York, because he lived out in Plainfield, he stayed, my wife and my loft, and they're just really good friends. He was uh, a groomsman at our wedding, he came out and then played on, uh, it's really the last, he played on Walk on Water, and he did the tour after um, Casual Gods. I don't He did play on Casual Gods, but not very much, just on a couple of songs. Because mainly I played, I, I recorded that in Milwaukee. And so I would bring people out. And so that was mainly, <clears throat> other than Alex Weir, who had become a guitar player in Talking Heads, Steve Scales came out and played on that. And, but mainly, other than that, I drew on local people. And I just knew around that scene if I wasn't going to do it myself. Mm-hmm. How how aware was the Talking Heads or yourself of like what Bernie did previously in Parliament Funkadelic? Did that 
did that material influence the band as well as the some of the African stuff you mentioned? Um, or not well, so much? The band was always heavily influenced by R&B. And so, and I would say that Chris has an amazingly deep understanding of that. Partially because Chris has the ability to sit and listen to music sort of 24-7. Whereas maybe it's because I listen to music a little bit analytically. It's like I can't always just have it on in the background. It kind of wrecks me doing other things. And But I had played all of these things like James Brown and Rufus Thomas and... Uh, Oh, and, you know, the miracles and stuff like that in my high school bands. I mean, I was in a high school band really before the Beatles and the, and the Stones broke the United States. So the repertoire we played was all, um, well, music that had been on the charts, but a lot of it being R&B. And there were a lot of bands that were like totally into R&B music. And then I got into a band that got really into blues, partially as the English blues scene developed and the stones came along but also listening to muddy waters and to things like that so there was a real appreciation across the board and i think that when talking at 77 came out nobody understood our influences but when more songs about billions of food came out when we did take me to the river everyone went oh that's that's their muse so to speak and Funk music being a outgrowth of R and B, we were pretty all we were all pretty aware of it. I mean, as I said, I had played James Brown, so I had watched his progression, and then of course Sly and the Family Stone, and those two they were kind of lodestones to what I thought became uh, the explosion of funk music. And you know, one of the interesting things as you see is that the psychedelic music sort of the san francisco scene so like the jefferson airplane and the grateful dead really informed the atmosphere of sly and the family stone it really informed what they wore a certain looseness about things and about and also <laughs> a likelihood of of uh drug experimentation mm -hmm. and that actually was true in funkadelic too so there was this sort of sense of you look at the R&B bands of the previous era, which is what was influencing my high school band, like the Miracles all wore matching suits, maybe with really unusual lapels or something like that, just as the Beatles did in the beginning. And that just all went out the window. It's like when the psychedelic movement came along, it's like, no, I want to express myself. And some people express themselves by sort of blue collar identification by wearing work shirts and blue jeans and others by bell bottoms with paisley patterns and all sorts of crazy stuff and so i think the i think the the birth of funk was that sort of freedom from being the sort of tight um but sometimes slightly anonymous unit behind a really great singer to everyone having a personality in the band and, you know, you think of someone like Larry Graham, who just was so essential to what Sly and the Family Stone were doing. And, and James Brown tried to sort of keep both going. You know, he was, as he's famous for being a very um, strict bandmaster, finding people if they were late or made a mistake or 
various things, but you see in his progression of music, him getting further and further away from what you might call traditional R&B. I mean, you, you took, took, look at a song like It's a Man's World or Try Me, and they're pretty, pretty in the line of, of, I mean, Try Me, you could imagine Benny King singing that or something like that, but, you know, then it, by the time, even by the time of something like Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, he was, he was getting into that sort of, uh, playing games with time that I think is so essential to funk music where it sort of stops and starts, but you, you, you as a listener have to keep the beat going to get the tricky and clever and fabulous ways that people come in with parts that uh, have this sense of fantastic syncopation. And, you know, some people say it's a little bit like puzzle music. And, you know, I mean, people have taken this in a different direction. I mean, I certainly did on the red and the black, but also, you know, a band like Tool and stuff like that, where you do another time signatures and things like that. And it's, it's like sort of keeping the listener on their toes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the dancing also changed. It's like if you were watching Soul Train, it's like you've got more flamboyant dancing as you got away from the sort of more, the easier, more consistent grooves of what had been sort of more traditional R&B. And the red and the black, which you mentioned, was your, your first solo record in 81. And yeah. that was during a time when uh, Talking Heads took a bit of a hiatus, right? Yes. I mean, yeah. it was a few, few years. And I think, was that also the break where uh, Tom Tom Club first came out or was it after Yes, that? it was, yeah. Um, that David did the Catherine Wheel, I did the Red and the Black, and, and Chris and Tina did the Tom Tom Club. It wasn't years, I think it was, but it was, it was like, let's take a little break. And I, you know, I had been writing these songs actually pre-Remain in Light that like started going into what became the Red and the Black. But it was a huge challenge for me to suddenly be the lead singer and to be responsible for the lyrics. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that I took my time between the Red and the Black and Casual Gods is I tried to get myself to be a better lead singer. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that it was also a great learning experience for Chris and Tina, as well as me, to sometimes understand the pressure that David was under to come up with lyrics and to come up with that melody. Because when we had done like the albums like Remain in Light and then Speaking in Tongues, they, uh, when you write the lyrics after the music goes down, you're threading a needle. And what's great about it is that all of the musical parts are usually pretty interesting because they were there to create a whole, not to just stand behind a vocal line, but they would stand on their own. So you've got this, they provided the bed for the singing, but they, they had a contrapuntal uniqueness to themselves because when we were composing them, we were unaware of what the vocals were going to be. And so that was my process on really most of my records. When we did speaking in tongues, we had kind of learned to put in chord changes and to do uh, things to make writing melodies 
more interesting. Um, you know, David, in the end, re Remain in Light, which I think is in many ways the most noteworthy record that, that Tongi has ever made, because it sort of completely changed the face and the direction of music across the boards. Um, nevertheless, the stories are wonderful, and the and the, the but the but the the melodies are limited because it's sort of modal. It's just in a in a in a key, but it's not. You don't feel a succession of, of chord changes to drive melodic melodic movement. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned uh, before, Jerry, about sort of uh, not really seeking fame and and that kind of you know exposure, but certainly speaking in tongues brought that kind of attention to the group and uh, yeah. bring down the house being such a big hit. How did that sort of change things and how did you feel about that? Well, I thought it was about time, frankly. Um, you know, we were getting fantastic reviews, like saying we were the best album of the year and the Village Voice and the Enemy and things like that. And I think what really changed is that Warner Brothers was particularly known as a label that allowed artists to develop, which was a great thing, but they sometimes waited a long time before they spent any money on trying to, to break a single. Now, Seymour Stein had spent money and time on Take Me to the River, which was a hit actually on AM radio, not on FM. And of course, Everett went into life during wartime, but there was never the push that other bands got. And when we did Speaking in Tongues, there was a sudden lull in record buying of all the Rod Stewart's and Linda Ronstadt's that Warner Brothers had grown accustomed to, like, basically, that's how they paid all their bills. And they realized that maybe people were tiring of what they had been listening to for the last three years. For four years and that they better develop some of their newer artists so they put a lot of money into burning down the house but what they didn't do is the follow-up single to that was this must be the place and you know that song has gone on to be in many ways for a lot of people a lot of Tony Hans fans their favorite song that we ever did and there's no you know it, it, of course it was in the movie Wall Street which really did help its notoriety. But it's like, I can't tell you how many people have come up and said, like, that was the theme song for our wedding or things like that. And had that been made as a successful single, a la uh, Burning Down the House, our record sales would have jumped, instead of to a million, would have jumped to five million or four million because they would have shown a variety because it was such a different song. It wasn't at all like, and of course, it's a song that insinuates itself into your consciousness. And then to a degree, there's no song ever like it again. I mean, it's really odd and wonderful. I remember um, when I first heard it on that record and I was sort of, wow, this is surprising, you know, so different. Yeah. 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 And so anyway, Warner Brothers finally put some money behind us. And then, you know, then we went off and did a tour for that. And then... We didn't make make another solo record. We uh, decided we wanted to film "Stop Making Sense," and we had just done the live album. The name of this band is Talking Heads, and you know all the record companies going. What do you mean you want to do another live record? You just did a live record. 
And we go, no, there's something special about this. And we ended up actually funding the filming of that by our, ourselves. Uh, I mean, or at least half of it ourselves. And we put together the big band, as I said, I hired them because for two shows, we were going to do the Heat Wave Festival up in Toronto and then Central Park. But then once we did it, we knew we had to, that we had to take that on the road. And so it was the only time that we ever borrowed money from Warner Brothers for tour support, which we eventually paid back by the success of the tour. It was also the end of me being the road manager for Talking Heads because, as I said to uh, Gary Kerfers, he goes, I, don't, I said, I don't mind doing some of the prep work for the tour. I don't mind picking up the money. But I do mind getting it up an hour late, an hour earlier to wake up all these other motherfuckers. I don't have time. I just can't do that. So, so at, at long last, we finally had a tour manager, which was a good thing. But I don't know what it was. At least you know, with the touring party, like twelve people on tour, we had been a very, very compact unit. I I was the road manager, so it was Chris and Tina, David and me, and then. Uh, Frank Gallagher and Ace Penna as our crew. Frank mixed the sound. Ace was our only person on stage. We carried no lights, just told everyone to take the gels off and turn the lights on. And so we always made money, even though we were doing very small places, because we were so, if we needed to, Chris and Tina and I and David would be driving in like a station wagon or something like that, or and Ace and, and Ace and Frank were in a truck. And we'd help them, if there was like no time, we'd help them set up. And we, we didn't, we'd want, we did never wanted to be in debt and we never wanted to uh, um, have anything extra. Uh, it was part of the punk aesthetic and part of the, a certain art aesthetic at that time of minimalism. But it was also very practical. It also put, meant that we were never really in debt to our record company and never, and they therefore didn't have the, they couldn't boss us around. I mean, we were one of the unique bands that designed our own covers. And we also ended up doing our own videos for, for years. And we were, uh, we were sort of in, artistically in control and we had, we had the success that they just they basically said like let's just get out of the way and i don't think i don't think that many bands ever had that freedom 